I, I mean, I take every single thing that happens in a day as an opportunity to practice something. It's, it's remarkable to me, whether it's answering email or feeding the horses. You know, there is in all of that an, an embedded or invitational kind of practice. Usually it's just attentiveness. Friends is Barbara Brown Taylor. If you don't know who that is uh, today, you are in for a treat to meet someone new that you definitely need to know. Barbara Brown Taylor is a New York Times bestselling author. She was named by Time Magazine as one of the 100 most influential people a few years ago. Uh, Baylor named her one of the 10 uh, most prominent preachers in America. And uh, actually, the, the day that uh, it was announced that she was on the cover of Time Magazine, we recorded an episode. This was a couple of years ago. I think she even has like seven honorary doctorates. Uh, all, all these stats, I'm just kind of winging off the top of my head, so they might not be accurate, but I'm sure they're pretty close to being accurate. Um, but her new book is entitled Always a Guest. And let me tell you the way I think you should uh, listen to this book uh, by just doing that listening. Go get the uh, audio version. Uh, I'm a fan of Audible. And uh, get this book because you're going to want to have her read it to you. It's just really great the way that uh, she records it. And they're each kind of like episodic chapters that you can kind of listen to on their own. So go for a walk, uh, finish this podcast, of course, download that book. And then you're going to want to listen to one every time you go on a walk or whatever you do. It's just a great book. So go check it out. It's always a guest. Now, uh, let me tell you another rookie move that I did. We started uh, talking and then uh, like eventually I hit record on this podcast. And so like I, <laughs> there's a callback to Destiny's Child, which is not going to make sense. I, I'm sorry. I think the, the reference was that uh, Destiny's Child is uh, Michelle Williams of Destiny's Child is the only other guest who wants to do no video while we talk. And anyway, so that's the reference we're making. Uh, but now without further ado, the author of the new book, Always a Guest, Barbara Brown Taylor. Enjoy. All right, friends, welcome back to the podcast. Today we have one of my absolute favorite people in the world, Barbara Brown-Taylor. How are you, Barbara? I love talking to you, Luke. You know I do. You, and that's what broke my heart so much. A week and a half ago, I get a text message from one of my good friends, Jay, who sends me a screenshot of your newest book. And I was heartbroken that somehow this book came out and I didn't know it. And so I send you a message immediately asking, why do bad things happen to good podcasters? That I, I, and I feel like here's the thing in your book, you have this line about people who've helped you connect with culture, and you talked about like bloggers and people online, and you also included podcast hosts, which I knew you don't have to say it was just me you're thinking of, but like I knew in my heart <laughs> you were thinking of me. <laughs> and then lo and behold, I don't even have you on when your book comes out, and I, I just feel like there's a bridge that was destroyed by me, and I hope we can put it back together. Let's do it. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> It wasn't that, it wasn't completely torn, but I know you were a little heartbroken, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was. Yeah. I, okay. yeah, I mean, you know, in between the headlines, I didn't have a lot of extra time to be heartbroken about <laughs> in between the headlines, but yeah, what I did. Okay. Well, we're going to fix that and we're going to have a lot of fun right now. Okay. Um, I, I'll tell you, can I tell you something? Sure. A couple weeks ago, I was in a situation where I had, uh, long story short, someone was apologizing for doing something wrong to me. I know it's hard, hard to imagine that someone would choose to do something hurtful to me, but that happened. And as they're like apologizing, I have this line that runs through my head, which I believe is from the book um, Leaving Church, where you have this story you tell about uh, like you felt like you needed to apologize. I think it was to like a young pastor. And there's this line about grace is like unlocking a door when you have the ability to lock it. Does that sound right? Mm -hmm. Did you write that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I thought, man, if Barbara Brown Taylor was here, 
she would encourage this person to unlock the door. Now, I hadn't talked to you in a while, so I locked it instead. But I knew in that moment, if if we'd have talked, I would have been nicer. So I, so I feel like right now, this is helping me become nicer to everyone else. Okay. And we're both, yeah, we got a pledge. We got a pinky pledge here. We're both going to be nice on this thing. During, like, during the last 18 months, I'm not saying you're an introvert. I don't know if you say that publicly, but it would be hard to say you're not uh-huh. an introvert. Uh-huh. Is that fair? Yes. Yeah, I'm reaching okay. for more Christian terms, like I'm I'm a mystic or a hermit or a pilgrim <gasps> or I'm a wandering ascetic. Only I'm not ascetic. Yeah, yeah. Introvert's kind of a cold phrase, but I really I enjoy non-human company a lot. <laughs> I, I love people, just so I, not in person. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like. Like, did, did you kind of thrive when you were told, hey, you can't meet with people and like you can't do face to face every day? And like inside, you were a little bit happy about that, weren't you? You know, and let's, I mean, I'm going to get serious. I think I can be serious and nice, but it okay. was a relief. Yeah. It was a great relief and vacation to have the world say no for a while. Because it takes so much energy in a busy, busy, productive, youth-oriented culture to say no all by yourself. And I think of no as a Sabbath practice. I mean, learning to say no, mm-hmm. gosh, right there in the commandments. You don't, don't. Saturday, Sunday, the Sabbath is a no day. Um, so it was a, a real relief for the whole world um, to be put into time out. Though, to be real serious... I mean, I know two people who killed themselves over the last 18 months because being put into timeout with themselves was too painful and, and they lost their supports. So I, I am a person who does not feel alone when they're just birds and trees around and chores to do. But I have a heart that includes people who suffer terribly from kind of a lack of oxygen and a lack of blood flow when they can't be with people whom they want to love and who they want to be loved by. But, but they, um, they've had a really hard 18 months. So I know for some of them, the the kind of resurgence of this virus is just like news too bad to bear. So we'll figure out another way to go forward. Yeah. Well, I think that there's been just different experiences that people have had and it's heartbreaking. One of my daughter's uh, friends had an older brother who's barely a teenager, and his life ended in suicide uh, during this. Like, hopped off the anyway, uh, like it while he was not in school with his friends, and uh, like it's it's really heartbreaking that, mm-hmm. that uh, the way some people have experienced this, and and others uh, like it's it, it there's an ability to not feel alone even when them they are by themselves. Mm-hmm. And w- one of the things you just said a second ago uh, that like everyone wants to do stuff. It, but you used a description for this culture that it's youth-oriented. Mm-hmm. How, wh- what is the connection between youth-oriented and like not being able to say no and not being able to slow down? Having your 50 years ahead of you instead of behind you um, with uh, whom you'll partner with, whether you have a family, what your life's work will be, places you might live, the multiple jobs you might do because... Teaching college taught me most people were planning for two or three. They didn't think one job would carry them through to retirement age. So there is a big difference, I think, between knowing the majority is ahead of you or the majority is is behind you. 
I always, when mine was ahead of me, I always felt kind of condescendingly sorry for those who had slowed down. And, and now I realize they were, some of them were just keeping a secret because if their knees still worked and their backs didn't hurt too bad and, you know, they could still pass their blood tests, then, then they had time for things they'd never had time for before. Um, So that would be the difference. You know, there is in, in, in these so-called golden years, a kind of gilded opportunity, again, where probably the world around us says, you can stop now, you can rest now. But I have found um, that gets wrapped up with a kind of, I don't know, you're going to edit this thing, right? No, (laughs) if you want me to, but I think you're doing great. Well, I I just, I find out there's a sort of uh, padding on the head that says, well, go ahead then, it's time for you to crochet. Or go ahead, you know, and and figure out how to bake a better pie. And I don't know how to say, no, this is about a whole different way of living and of calculating my worth. And it has a lot more to do with Sabbath than it does with, you know, with the other six days of the week. It's almost like in some ways the older years of a life are like a lengthy, you know, or like whatever the lifetime equivalent of a Sabbath is, if, if it's a seventh of a week for a person in his or her thirties or forties, then yeah. it, it's a, it can be a time of life. I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I'm very taken with the ignored possibilities of, of becoming more contemplative, not because I'm sick or old or sidelined or, you know, living in a, a hovel, but, but because I choose it and God knows choice is one of the amazing things that we have and I don't want to lose the ability to choose. And and that includes the pace of my life. Yeah. I I don't know if I have like a, like talking down condescension Mm -hmm. towards older people or the stage of life, Mm -hmm. but I feel like I have a fear of it. And maybe it's a fear that I can't imagine Sabbath moving from just one day to being five days or whatever that looks like for me that, I, maybe it is the identity thing that I am too wrapped up in all these things that I do that they define me and that I I feel like if I'm divorced from that, then maybe what am I? I don't know. As you're saying that, I'm realizing that that like my fear of aging is, is a fear of letting go of a part of life that for me is not just part of life, but it is the entirety of life. Mm. Well, you said... And maybe there's a... Go ahead. No, I, I was just saying like, it seems like there's a like a maturity when, when I can let go of that to receive maybe what is always intended for me to have in the first place. You use the word identity, and I think that's a key word. And then the culture in which one's identity is lived out is key. In other words, I think, you know, we find our identities in particular times and places, and probably that includes economic, social, gendered places, as well as age places. But I, I think you've got your finger on part of what I felt called, feel called to explore, which is I have all the fearfulness that you're talking about, but it's moving into the past tense as I experiment, you know, both in the company I keep, what I read, what I do with my days, experimenting with, with the shifting of identity. Because at some point or another for all of us, those identities will be taken from us. 
Mm-hmm. So what's it like to begin voluntarily to lay parts of them down ahead of time? It's also a temperamental thing, okay? Let's own that. Whether whether we can exhaustingly talk about the Enneagram and our, <laughs> and our wings or the Myers-Briggs, it's very temperamental. Because I also know people my age who are intentional interim pastors who love, love the work of parish ministry. And and when age requires them to stop the full-time work, they go on flourishing, doing wonderful things in congregations and probably in their families and their friendship circles as well. So it's a temperamental difference also. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I was wondering if you're going to talk about the Enneagram. No, never. You, no. Never? No, not. I, you brought it up, not me. I know. I mean... But like everyone like who reads you, like we know what you are in the Indian. Right? No, like, you don't. We, no, you don't. Everybody oh, thinks they do. You do not. You think what does everyone think you, you think what does everyone think you are? You think I'm a one. Like you think I'm no. an oldest child, or you think I'm a four. Everybody thinks I'm a tragic, mm. melancholy four. I'm not, and I'm not telling you what I am. I'm not telling anybody. Well, but I'm not what you think. There are only seven more guesses to go. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Closer than when I started. All, All right. right. Give me some more time. We'll get there. Okay. Um, so, okay. So the fear that, that I have, it is moved past tense for you. Moving. And moving past mo- tense. Moving. Moving. I like to always ask, like, what are the practices that help you get there? I don't think this is, is this a question that, like, the practice is really the issue, or is it more like the posture? Because it seems like the, the practice is that, as we age, we're given an opportunity to like grow bitter or become a sage. Hmm. And it's almost like your posture dictates which course you take, but Hmm. I'm not in that stage of my life yet. Hmm. So I'm just guessing. Hmm. Well, I, I love that. I, I mean, I take every single thing that happens in a day as an opportunity to practice something. It's, it's remarkable to me, whether it's answering email or feeding the horses. You know, there is in all of that an, an embedded or invitational kind of practice. Usually it's just attentiveness, and it's attentiveness to what I'm thinking while I'm doing what I'm doing or how I'm resisting it or the metaphor I see in it or, or how I'd like to write 250 words about it or... Uh, and then noticing that I can't just do the thing. I want to write 250 words about it. So it seems to me like there's a kind of attentiveness to outward and inner reality that that makes things a constant spiritual practice. But I was let me let me tell a real story. I was just invited to write 500 words for an Atlanta magazine, and it's about home, and it's about how how home shifted or solidified during the last 18 months. And and I realized I want to write about these Adirondack chairs I bought in about June. And I moved them outside under a winged elm. And instead of drinking my tea inside in the air conditioning with a ceiling fan, I moved outside and sat in the Adirondack chair, which meant there were bugs, there was poison ivy, there were dogs coming and slobbering on me, there were gorgeous birds hopping up and down the tree. And the, the aliveness of that was so shocking that I made that a new practice, was taking tea in the Adirondack chair to be in what occurred to me, being Christian that I am, um, a place where the Holy Spirit, the wind, of John three could blow me around much better than it could blow me around inside the house. I mean, the air conditioning current couldn't hold a candle to what happened under that tree in the Adirondack chair. So I realized 
that for this article, I want to talk about how my house is built on my home, but the home is the land on which my house is built. And my home is everything that happens right outside the doors of my house. Now I live in a house and I don't live, you know, in a, in a, in an apartment or a trailer or, but there's, there's a, there's a place outside all our doors, I think. And so a practice of this aging is going to sound way too weird, but I, I notice all the things in this place, my outside home where I live, they're so much older than I am. I mean, oak trees that have got me beat and stone walls. I don't even know who built them. And, and the beds of roads that were here before I was born. And I start to realize I have this human place in a place that's way older than I am. Cherokee removal happened here. I'm sure lynchings happened within a couple miles of where I live. The, the oak trees have seen more than I'll ever see. And finding my place in that longer chronological time, is that a practice or a posture? Hmm. I'll say yes. <laughs> you know, I don't I know what like, it is. It's a walk. But I feel like maturity, I forget where I read this from, but it's going from from me to we to us. Mm-hmm. And so it starts off just me and then it becomes just like my people. So it's, it's we, but eventually you move to like, it, it, it's everything. Like we're, we're connected to, to everyone and home is, is this, this gift that in some ways, like we, we all share the same home. We're all on the same earth. Like it's just, it's just one we got. Mm-hmm. I know Elon Musk is trying to get us a couple that we can vacation in, but mm-hmm. for, for the most part, we're all stuck here. Uh, and, Mm-hmm. I don't know, p- posture or practice, I, I don't know the answer to that, but it seems like the trajectory is 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 going there. Now, we we don't always get there, but yeah, I don't know the answer, posture or practice. If you don't know the answer, I definitely don't. But yeah, what, see, I, what I love about what you say, though, is, and uh, fortunately, politics supports me at this point, because the us, if it doesn't include creation, Christian word, or religious word, if it doesn't include the environment, you know, the scientific word, it's not a big enough us yet. Because there's no us, there's no you, me, we, or us without this atmosphere, this food, this drink, this sun, this darkness that, you know, starts pumping out our melatonin so we can sleep. I mean, there's no us without this all. And so, so I do think there's a way in which from dust we came into dust we shall go becomes a lot more um, real and tangible than it used to be, which is, you know, to... To look at that, I'm bringing you down, Luke. How are we going to perk this up? We, we can do this. Well, first of all, we we were pretty high before we hit record. I feel like the connection that we made with uh-huh. you and Destiny's Child was pretty much like the the zenith of where we could be. Um, and so, it's just natural, we got a little bit more more serious here. Mm-hmm. Um, that was funny to anyway. It's people. What are we talking about, Luke? Anyway, we'll leave it there. I know you're, um, you're going to have to fill everybody in on that one if you want to do that. Okay. Yeah, we'll just let it. Okay. We'll just let it hang there. Um, what was I going to say? Um, oh, but the the creation part. Mm-hmm. You know, Paul writes about that. Like we're all waiting for redemption, and that includes creation. Like that that all are like connected together. That it's not just individ- It's not just people. It's just as humans, but like all creation is waiting mm-hmm. for redemption. So there's this sense that like the the us is mm-hmm. bigger than just me. Pan, but I, pan human, pan yes. Okay, you had uh, a sermon in the book, which is entitled Always a Guest, in which you talk about 
like how we move from, you know, we can just trash creation, we're going to get a new one. And then it was, no, we got to be good stewards of human, like the new language is like being stewards of it. Mm. And I'll be honest, like I haven't preached the, the rest of that sermon like you preached it before. And I don't think you're, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying like, wow, that's uh, that's a move that hasn't been practiced in front of me a whole lot to take the sermon and to take that like that mentality towards understanding like it's it's all of creation, that we're in this together, that we're kind of related, that creation in some ways is like the, the, first, um, the first part of this. And we've kind of come along later uh, mm-hmm. in God's creative work. So... I assume that there are not a lot of students that you're having at Piedmont that have like been taught that, right? Like most of us are, are not having that sort of instruction, Mm. but how do we, how do we get there? Well, first of all, for your listeners, I didn't stop with stewards because stewards is still like being manager of the estate. I think I ended up somewhere like you're, you're a brother or sister. I mean, let's start talking St. Francis here. You're looking at the sister moon in the sky and waking up to the brother sun, you know, that we go finally way past steward. I just wasn't, I just wasn't comfortable enough to say that. Like, I, I know you wrote that. I was like, ah, we'll just let her go there. Cause that's still a little bit out there for me. Even I, though I think I've you're Presbyterian. Aren't you, aren't you Luke Presbyterian? I know I'm church of Christ. Oh, you are? I'm, the, oh, no. I'm the only one going to heaven. Remember? Oh, how uh, did I get that wrong? Cause you say, know, it's, but... <laughs> go ahead. no, I'm just crying a little bit inside, but <laughs> it's all right. Cut that part out. Take that part okay. out. Okay. So we'll pretend like uh, that didn't happen. Uh, you made me think of something else. Back, 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 back. Oh, I don't I don't care who gets it. I mean, I just talked to this wonderful British guy who said, we've got to put the odd back in God. <laughs> and I thought that was so brilliant. You know, like the, the that, way yeah. in which, in some ways, there's so much pressure to be a central, fully informed, you know, up on the language changes to meet this week's headlines that that we we lose track of the um, brilliance, the div- divinity of being eccentric, you know, of being off kilter, off to the side, the 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 minstrel, the troubadour, the troublemaker, the chain rattler. I don't know. Put the odd back in God. I like it. I'm thinking about it. Yeah, I like that whole troubadour thing just because of George Strait, because he had a song called Troubadour, and he's from Texas, so I like that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'm even thinking, I'm working on something now about, well, you know, to strengthen people who do the kind of work that you and I do. You do it much more actively than I do now because nobody much knows. I retired from teaching four years ago. I'm just still trying to slow down. But I I, I looked up today, behold, it's the best one of the best words in the King James Version of the Bible. Behold, it happens 1,298 times in the King James Version of the Bible. The Bible I use the most is the New Revised Standard Version. And guess what? It uses behold 27 times, none in the New Testament. What happened to behold? And Mm. then it turns out when you chase it down to its roots, at least in Greek, it means to gaze, to gaze upon something, not to look toward it, but to look at it, stop. It's kind of Moses in the burning bush. Yeah. Behold, gaze, turn aside, look. And, uh, Ah, I I get uh, fascinated with that. And what happens to that ability when the kind of prophetic social justice activist edge is taking up all the oxygen in the room? I mean, a, a, a thing, I don't know how many people who are listening do what you and I do, but what happens to the ecstatic when the prophetic uses up all the oxygen? You know, what happens to beauty when doing the right thing 
takes up all the oxygen. What happens mm-hmm. to poetry when prose is taking up all the oxygen? So I, I think I'll be <laughs> a voice crying out in the wilderness for more beholding, even if, I don't know, even if I don't save a whale. While I'm doing it, though, God, I would love to. And I think beholding a whale might be the beginning of saving it, tell you the truth. Okay, bring me back. Bring me back. Reel no, me in, Luke. No, you're Reel good. But the, behold, like, behold, though, is a pace thing. Like that you slow down. Yeah. And you you don't, like Moses doesn't see the burning bush while he's running along and keep running. Like he he, he stops. Like your shoes are coming off. Mm-hmm. Like your your schedule's coming to a halt. And I, like I got to be real honest. I, I, uh, I listen to Always a Guest uh, on Audible because you read it and it's great. <laughs> and I like the way you read it. But like I confess, my wife hates me for doing this. But when I listen to books, I listen to them at like double speed or like 1.8. And so I'm talking to you and I've been listening to you for a while, like go through the book. And I'm like, she like speed it up. Like this is like too, like you're, I'm used to you double time. And like, even that pace is just like, yeah, I'll listen to an idea. That's a good idea, but it never, like it, it, it doesn't get beheld. It becomes like observed, noted down, Uh written down, and then I move on. And that's a, a pace thing that isn't, isn't enabling it. It doesn't facilitate that posture. You know, I, I, I hope you stay in good shape because you're going to have to play pickleball when you're 80. I mean, there's no way in the world that your wife's going to stay with you if you don't play pickleball or do something really active. That, I mean, that's, that is very true. She, mm-hmm. <laughs> she, she wants me to go work out, like get out of the house, go to the garage, go, <laughs> go to your gym, go wherever. That's fair. <laughs> yeah. But, do you, but if you're trying to get us to behold, and no, I'm not. Say, I'm not trying to get you to. I'm just, I just, <laughs> I want you to do what you're doing because, you know, I do trust life and I trust the spirit to give each of us what, what, what we most need, whether that's the thing we most need to upset us and disturb us or the thing we most need to, to settle us and comfort us because it, it comes in all varieties every day. But no, see, that's the problem. It's a problem with being a preacher. You say anything and people think you're trying to get everybody else to do it. <laughs> I'm not trying to get anybody else to do it anymore. I'm just exploring it myself because I'm a busy, anxious person. And I just don't want to die that way. A busy, anxious person like that seems very uh, incompatible with the person who would go sit outside and I'm going to drink my tea out there instead of enjoying the air conditioning where I'm not going to have anything to be worrying about, like licking or biting or chewing on me or, (laughs) you know, giving me some rash because it's poison ivy. Mm -hmm. Like, it seems like these are things that are like, you're, you're being pulled away into like, like who you're supposed to be. Like this, this is like the, like your ongoing, you know, I heard a, a, a wise priest once uh, posed the question of what is saving you today? I don't know if you've ever heard that question. It's a great one to ask every day. Um, nothing? Like, that's your question. That was no, that was John Claypool's question. I stole it, and everybody thinks I said it. I, well, I'm one of those people. So, okay, it was funnier to me. Because I've always... <laughs> whatever. But it seems like that's like... there's That life is pulling you into this, if you observe it. it what's the it? If I observe it? I, um... I would put a capital I on it and say that which is in all things and working in all things mm-hmm. and through whom all things were created like that, mm-hmm. that, 
divine it maybe? Yeah, and actually I like it better than him or her. I, I would love to ask God for pronouns. No, it would be, I just think the English language fails. Like it's just, it's a bad system. Like, and so we're kind of mm-hmm. stuck, but the divine, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Well, Genesis called it they, but nobody's going to go for that anymore, I guess. Or maybe let's not go down this rabbit hole. All right. So I'm busy and anxious because I still want to be useful. And I still have very busy friends, you know, who invite me to be useful with them. So yeah. I think the busy, you know, anxious thing uh, is inbuilt and it's always in tension with sitting in the Adirondack chair, but honest to goodness, the Adirondack chair is the bliss. You know, the, the other part Ooh. is the ah, got to get dinner ah, almost out of horse food. Ah, you know, the dogs need their heartworm pills. Ah, the email is, is longer than my arm. Ah, you know, there's a deadline yeah. coming up. So it's the tension between the being and the doing. Didn't Henry Nouwen teach us that, that, that we're called somehow to deeper being instead of more doing? And then maybe it's not an instead of along with, but. And I think for some people, since I'm talking to you and, and we're beautifully holding down, I think, two ends of a continuum, you know, of the, the younger, the older, the active, the retired. But I, I, it, it does seem to me that the two go together. But doing, yeah. why does doing always win out? I don't know. I mean, you feel like you've accomplished something. Mm-hmm. People respect you for doing. People admire mm-hmm. productivity. Yeah. Uh, and when you're at a party, gravitate. nobody asks you who you are. I mean, <laughs> how you be. They ask you what you do. <laughs> no. Yeah. And like the funny thing is if if something's doing well, then people want to be around it. Mm-hmm. Like if it's like the funny thing, like I've heard celebrities talk about this. Like once you become rich and famous, people give you free stuff. And they're like, I, I could have used the free stuff mm-hmm. before I was rich and famous. Mm-hmm. And like something does really well and all of a sudden more people want to like buy it or watch it or consume it. And you go, well, it's already got enough. So it seems like, like we, we gravitate towards Mm -hmm. what we do. And if we are what we do, then we better be good at it. Mm Hmm. 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 Okay. There's a lot of hmm that we're doing right no, now. Back well, and, forth and the huh is just because I've been today spending time with two different people who are very different people who are both exhausted from being good at stuff. Absolutely out of everything because they're so good at what they do that a, they get asked to do a lot and B they put their absolute utmost into what they do. And they're both scraping the bottom of their existential barrels right now from all that. So I think you're also catching the tide of that in my, in my conversation that I'm, I have talked to two people really dear to me, you know, who are excellent doers and their being is just skin and bones. I had a conversation with uh, a few weeks ago with a guy who does uh, stuff on like burnout Mm -hmm. and he has this uh, instrument that he's, you know, gives out to people, pastors and other leaders. And it, it seems like the information that he's gathering is that there are so many people who are just in exhaustion and, uh, chronic stress, I think is a term that some are using right now. Mm. And, and so maybe your two are, are, are pronounced case and the, the, you know, more so than many others, but it seems like a lot of people are, are at that place right now. Um, I, I wonder if the, the, I mean, the emphasis and the focus on what you're doing naturally just leads to a lot of people who are just in that state where it's, we're just burnt out. We're done. We don't have anything left because we've been going and going and going. Mm. So see, 
I don't, uh, you and I've never been, in, have we been in a room together or do we talk like this? Most well, before I had the podcast, like I would sit outside your office and your house <laughs> and I would try to like build up a conversation and, and the security guards told me to leave Piedmont three times. Uh -huh, so, uh -huh, but yeah. no, like, but other than that, no, not really. other than that. Well, I, I mean, I'm, I'm wanting to turn. I mean, I'm, I now want the tide to run the other way because I, I also love talking about what, what not just what's saving your life, but what gives you life. Because I think that is part of the bringing the sides of the continuum, you know, into a humming kind of middle is when, when my doing feeds the being. I mean, there are things I've been able to do since I stopped teaching full time that are just stuff everybody does. Like I take people to the doctor now and it turns out to be the most fun thing I do because there's nothing else I'm supposed to be doing. My job is to drive 90 minutes you know, to the medical center and yeah. I can't go in. So I sit outside in the garden and I read a book and the friend inside texts me and tells me what's going on. And then that person comes out and tells me, you know, what it was like for 90 minutes back home. And, and mm -hmm. I love doing that. It's not a job. I don't get paid for it, but it is fun to think about the stuff I do that just ads and ads and ads. And then I can afford to do some things that subtract, 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 because life's got both of them, right? There are also things yep. that are, that are need to be done that I want to do that really are strenuous. But, but it is fun to think about the things we love and things that give us life, the things we turn toward and, and, and giving them a good lion's share of energy and not leftovers. No, I agree. I I also know that you're accounting this conversation as life giving, not subtract. I know that, and if it's not, I don't want you to respond. Um, but I'm just in my head. I know that to be the case. Um, I had this. I don't know if you ever get on Instagram. Um, never. You ever do an never. Instagram, no enneagram. No Instagram. No enneagram. <laughs> no. Go ahead. If you had to pick one, which would you choose? To talk about the enneagram or to be on Instagram? <laughs> I'd rather talk about the enneagram. I know it. I know it. Okay. So I was on Instagram uh -huh. and someone like asked this, I did this, like ask me anything thing. And where people just ask you questions and you just respond. Cause I, I'm narcissistic. I just want to talk about myself. And so I do this thing. And so I'm responding to questions about myself, uh, because that's what I decided to do one time. And one of the questions is like, what do you learn about parenting? And so I, I wrote down that like the joys of life, uh, can't be saved uh, like they can only be savored or no, no uh, they can't be saved, but they, they can only be enjoyed or something like that. And I thought about it. I was like, that's not like, that's how I th I've thought for years. And something happened. Like, as I was thinking about that for months was I realized that I'm now able to savor joys of things that I experienced in the past. Mm -hmm. Whereas before it was always like, what's coming up or like, what's right now. Mm -hmm. And obviously part of this is my Enneagram number uh, mm -hmm. that I'm future oriented. Mm -hmm. But I, I feel like, as I age, I feel like whatever it is that, that's pulling me forward, I would call that God, um, is, is teaching me to savor those things uh, that are life-giving. And so my wife threw me this surprise 40th birthday party and I uh, got a like, bunch of friends from my gym and some other friends to show up all together. And like, it was this weird mixture of my friends together, which was great. And like for days after... Like I was writing in my gratitude practice for days after, like how much I enjoyed and savored what my wife did for me on my birthday. Mm. And I don't think I could have done that years before. See, see, 
I mean, I think that echoes what we were talking about earlier is, is that you had a few more years logged, right? A few more miles on your odometer and, mm-hmm. and, and through luck or grace or smartness, you've got some lovely things logged. I, I, I have noticed more and more and more how much that matters to me. It's not instead of the present or whatever my sense of the future is, but ah, you can savor what you've done. I mean, there, there's a savor. I love that, the difference between saving and savoring, even though you mm-hmm. took that back and tried some other words. I like. I tried to walk it back, but I don't yeah. know what the original one was. But yeah, you can. No, yeah, I love that. that. I love that. I think, who was it? Somebody said you couldn't even be, what, 40. 40 is the key age. I, I heard that at one point in the life of Judaism, you couldn't read the book of what? Job until you were 40. You couldn't, no, you couldn't read a Song of Solomon. Yeah. I thought oh, Song really? of Solomon. Oh, okay. Lots of stuff. Yeah, a little spicy stuff in there. But yeah. it so, could, I, I'll trust you over me, though. Let's say it's Job. No, I think it's Ezekiel. So, And you okay. think it's Song of Solomon, so we've got sex and prophecy there. That's really good, you know? But <laughs> Yeah, I... I <laughs> I try not to mix those two things together, but um, <laughs> uh, but yes, so you couldn't be reading Ezekiel until you're 40. <laughs> I forgot what we were talking about. Let's go back. I don't know. Let's I don't rewind. Know. Okay, you rewind. Know? Wait, wait, wait. Well, I'm going to go back. Now, this whole part, okay. you're going to cut out. Now we're going to start again. You ready? One, two, go. three. Okay. I Am I asking it. the question? No. You got, okay. I can't even figure out where to pick it up, but I think there was enough in there. I just love what you said about your 40th birthday. And 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 I there's a richness in memory. I, that, that's where parallel universes and probably Elon Musk comes back into the conversation because I'm convinced in some ways that I'm still five. I'm still eight. I'm still 16. I'm still 21. I'm still... 29, still 40, because I can revisit those places and I can even smell some of the stuff from those places. I can see it. I can taste it. I know where I was. And the richness of memory enhances my sense of where I am now because I know I'm laying down tomorrow's memory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's true. You know what I remember? One of the, I think it was the second time you and I talked. My, I think my oldest daughter was like three or four and I was working from home. My wife uh, uh, was uh, working at the hospital. She's a neonatal ICU nurse. And so she's gone. I'm watching the kids. And I'm recording this during nap time. And my daughter comes and bangs on the door while I'm talking to you. Like this <laughs> first time, I think. <laughs> and she goes, Daddy, come wipe my hiney. And she's yelling. <laughs> and I was just like, I didn't know you well enough to be like, hey, um, I'm sorry, but my daughter needs her hiney wiped. Um, and I was like super anxious and stressed. I was like, Okay, I I love you, but you're just gonna have to hold on a second. We're gonna do this in a minute. Um, but yeah, like those memories, they're they're. Uh-huh. It's that that line about Mary, where, like after Jesus was born and all that, it says that she like she treasured these things, uh-huh. and like they, they're still there. And I, I think uh, you know for those who've who've lost someone, like I think the thing about I, I've heard someone say that like grief is like carrying around a like br- a brick. Uh-huh. And you never get rid of it. Like, it's just part of your new, new mm-hmm. reality. Mm-hmm. But at first, it seems like well, you don't want to labor with this weighty object in your pocket all the time. But then you go, well, if I don't have that, then what do I have of them? Mm-hmm. And so part of, I think, what, what grief is, is that it's, it's love that continues to hold on to you. And mm-hmm. so th- that's still there. The, the memory is still there. The years are still there um, as we continue to move on. But they're, they're never gone. Mm-hmm. 
Now, here's a question for you. Do they ever yeah. change on you? I mean, does especially when you bring in those I've loved and lost, I've been amazed at how the relationship continues. And it probably continues only in my head. But it just seems so true to me that people I have loved and lost will just kind of show up in my imagination. They'll ask me a question from behind my left shoulder somewhere. I'll remember something about them I forgot to love. And it's just amazing to me, again, how memory turns into something else. But do your memories ever, I mean, do you, I've heard memoir described as what, sort of the, the imagined lives that we write about, you know, the, the truth we make up about what really yeah. happened. But Yeah. I I know my family, whenever they would read stories that I would write about our, our family, like in a book or, or in a sermon, they'd all go, well, that's, Definitely your account of it. It is nowhere near the truth of it. Um, and so I know the, the, the moments change, but yeah, I could have, I bet they do. Cause for some of us, there's like unresolved conflict. Mm -hmm. And I think in some ways those unresolved conflicts, mm -hmm. like they haunt us, but they, they also can like find peace mm -hmm. and they can find, like resolution and grace and, and like you, you see the, the best of what someone is, even if like the memories are like the worst of the moments that you guys had together. Mm -hmm. So I, yeah, I guess maybe they do change. Mm -hmm. I don't think, think so. Yeah. And I don't think it's all repairable, but I do know I, I, I'm married to a champion dreamer and his dad just dropped dead soon after he and I got together and his lament was always that they just didn't touch each other enough. They didn't hug each other enough. They weren't affectionate. You know, he loved his father and he thinks his father loved him, but not much embrace. And then through a really rich dream life, gosh, for three years he would cry in his sleep. And then and then he he woke up one day and, and had had a dream where he and his dad found each other and had a long wordless embrace <laughs> and that's in a dream but but our present life changed after that so how interesting yeah. hmm. uh i'm trying to get through this one um uh a year ago <clears throat> um this is gonna take a second um my my mom passed away um like about a month and a half into like social distancing hmm. and my mom had lyme disease and so like her illness was like just the normal like experience in my adult relationship with my mom. And so part of what her death was to me is that there was, um, there was never the, like the happy ending that I wanted where mm -hmm. there was like the illness went into uh, a, a different stage and she, like she was healthy and, and, and got years back. Like that just never was it. Um, but my, my youngest daughter uh, I, I think she's the same number on the Enneagram since I know how much you like to talk about that. Mm -hmm. um, she's got the, the same energy as her. Um, mm -hmm. Like I, I see my mom in her face mm -hmm. and in some way, like it, it, I don't know how to describe it or what this is, but I, I see in some ways like the chance that she never had mm -hmm. is passed down to her granddaughter mm -hmm. and like the life that she never was able like to fully embrace that somehow like it's in, and my daughter, and like that doesn't make any sense to me logically. I, I can't put that on a spreadsheet or like explain that with a calculator somehow, but I, I feel like it's true. Mm. And 
I don't know what that is, but I feel like there's something more to, to what's going on there. Gosh, what a thing. What a true thing. Mm-hmm. I, I completely, I don't even want to invent language for that. That just sounds so true to me. And, and again, it's sort of about transcendent life, isn't it? The life before us, the life mm-hmm. that goes on after us. And in this particular case, you've even got, you know, DNA and biology in there to talk about how your mother's life is, yes, alive in your daughter's life. Yeah. So maybe we're, we're too, what, too humanoid when we need it all to be conscious or scientific or provable or explicable, but the felt sense you have sounds truer to me than any of the above. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes what I can explain and, and uh, process like doesn't reach up into the kind of truth that is around us. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I had a whole, go ahead. I want to know how old that daughter is now and then you can go on. Uh, she is, she's eight. Okay. Yeah. And she's her eight. name is? Uh, Audrey. Hey, Audrey. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell her you said hi. Um, she doesn't listen to a whole lot of the podcast, but uh, <laughs> maybe, she, maybe she'll listen to this one. Uh, okay, so we started talking about Destiny's Child, and then uh, we got here. Like, we went pretty, pretty serious, and I had a whole, like, page of questions that I'd written down about your book, and I don't think we got to, to one of them. I think yet. we're still talking about Destiny, Luke. Yeah. I don't usually talk about Destiny, this. I mean, I, maybe that's why there's none of those questions in my notes, because I don't think in terms of Destiny much. Hmm. <laughs> Destiny, legacy, what's life all about? That, that's very <laughs> impressive how you tied those two stories together with the word destiny. <laughs> well, no, I hate it. We, I wanted to sell some books, so what should we do? <laughs> I, okay. Okay. The book, here's the thing. The, you might as well overtape this thing because there's a lot you're going to have to take out. I'm not going to cut any of it out. Oh, I just got to. No, no one, this okay. is what a podcast is. It's a messy conversation. And some people like to have the heavily produced stuff, but uh-huh. I feel like we have everything's heavily produced. Okay. And like everything is, you know, too smooth and like you can't get a grasp on it. And I feel like this conversation is far more human than that. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me ask you one question that I do have from the book. Mm-hmm. And this, this one question is going to lead all my listeners to go buy a copy of Always a Guest mm-hmm. because they're going to realize, wow. It's, it's all in the, the book that's going to answer all these questions about destiny and legacy. Mm. Um, that's you talk a, lie. a lot of That's a lie. <laughs> <laughs> you talk about worrying. Mm. And or you have multiple sermons talking about anxiety and worrying. And when I hear you... <laughs> oh, you writing, noticed that. <laughs> yeah. Well, we talked before, and you said, uh, worrying about people is how I pray for them. I... You said that, and I've worked, like, I've thought about that for years, and I'm like, well, I can't put that in a sermon. Like, I can't, it's just, it's hard to put that in there. But you're always, like, you're always talking about anxiety and worry, which, if we talked about the Enneagram, that might be a clue to what your number is, but... um, I deny it. You you, you did not talk about worry? It's not a clue? If you guess my Enneagram, I'm going to deny it. Go ahead. I, I don't... I don't need to because I already know what it is. Um, but <laughs> I, I was writing this sermon literally about the Matthew 6 text where yeah. Jesus says, you know, look at the, the birds of the air mm. and the lilies of the field. 
And I love the way that you tied that. And here's a line um, that I wrote down. Again, I listened to it audible, so the quote might not be perfect. But you say, beauty might turn out to be so woven into the hem of the Savior's garment that we cannot reach out to touch it without being healed and sent on our way to go make more of it. The only way to know is to stop worrying and go out and try. Mm. The idea of looking up and looking around at beauty as a resolution for worrying seems so counterintuitive to me, but it makes sense to you now. True. How? How? How'd you get there? Well, I do love that sermon. That was a hard sermon. Um, But was it hard? Um, because I was making the connection between beauty and justice. Mm-hmm. And and I was doing it on the back of a, a scholar from Harvard named Elaine Scarry, I think is how she says her name. But I loved her idea that when you see something beautiful, you want to make a replica of it. You want to have a child, mm-hmm. paint a painting, take a photograph. You You want to make more beauty in the world. And her connection to justice was, therefore, when you see things that have been made unbeautiful because they've been hurt or they've been hit or tornadoed or impoverished or scarred in some way, that that the the hurt beauty is the motivation to justice, you know, to, mm-hmm. to, to make a world with more beauty in it. And I loved that connection so much that I trusted it. I trusted her. And, and it's why I continue to be someone who wants to hold beauty in tension and partnership with justice and who wants to hold the ecstatic in tension mm-hmm. and partnership with the prophetic and that wants to keep active ministry, you know, lives meant to do good in the world, to keep those linked with lives and know how to stop one day a week at least and sit in an Adirondack chair and be amazed. So somehow the truth between Enneagram one through nine, you and me, introversion and extroversion, the beginning of this hour and the end is, is in that continuum. And the older I get, um, the more I trust it, man, that's cause not too much hurts yet. But I, um, before I wrap up that soliloquy and I know our time's coming to an end, thank you for telling me about your mother and for not being able to tell me about your mother at the beginning because you were feeling your mom so much. So that's part of what I'll remember the most. And the other thing I'll remember about this conversation for anyone who's listening is the reason you listen, who cannot listen to Luke? I mean, who cannot want to hear him say something else? Funny, meaningful, and the laugh. I mean, what a ridiculous laugh. That is such a good laugh. It's a contagious laugh, Luke. So I can't uh, thank you're you. You're the best. Yeah, you're the you best. Enough. Well, again, thank you for the time. It is an honor, as it always is, and uh, really appreciate it. Thanks, Barbara.